Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Gary Wilson. Gary is the founder of the website yourbrainonporn.com, which focuses on informing people about the effects of internet porn on the brain. He's also written a book on the topic called Your Brain on Porn, Internet Pornography, The Emerging Science of Addiction. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Gary. My pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to begin researching this topic and and eventually spreading the word about it? Yeah, it's sort of a strange story. My background is as an anatomy, physiology, pathology teacher. And my wife had a forum. And on the forum, there it was a forum about relationships. And it had articles. And many of the articles dealt with the neurobiology of sex, of orgasm, of ejaculation, of falling in love. So there was a lot of science on this forum. Now, something strange happened. In 2006, some men started to show up and post on her forum, a forum that had nothing to do with porn, but they were posting that they felt that they had problems related to porn, such as sexual dysfunction, such as erectile dysfunction or inability to orgasm. And she's like, what are you doing here? Now, we're not sure how they found the forum. We think it has something to do with Google. But Google must have put together these men's posts and more showed up and more showed up. And over the next few years, her forum, which had nothing to do with porn, turned into basically a locker room of guys trying to recover from porn addiction and porn induced sexual problems. And that led us to eventually write some articles about it that caused her forum to really explode. And she asked me to make a separate site in 2011, which is called yourbrainonporn.com. And I thought that would be it. You know, I make a separate site with information, some science, some of their recovery stories. And that became very popular. And I did a tech talk and that became very popular. And, and the reason we did this is because there was a big gap between what the men were being told that porn didn't cause any problems and certainly couldn't cause erectile dysfunction or altered sexual taste and what was really happening. And we knew that porn was causing these problems because when the men quit, uh, these problems remitted their sexual problems, eventually went away. And, and what was interesting is they also uh, experienced other unexpected benefits like uh, their concentration problems went away, their social anxiety went away, depression lessened, they had greater desire to be social, they had greater motivation, greater energy, they saw women differently. So they reported many, many benefits uh, that occurred at the same time. And we felt we had to get the word out because of this gap in information. Some were even suicidal uh, because they thought they were ruined for life. And we thought we'd just be in this for a little bit, it's 2018, you know, 12 years later, and we're still in this. So that's the short story. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I think a lot of people who are listening to this might think, well, I masturbate and the thing that immediately happens is I want to take a nap, right? But you talked about a lot of other things, erectile dysfunction, preferences for, for mates or sexual activity, a lot of other things that are potentially correlated. Could you talk more about that and expand on that? 
Well, the first thing I wanted to say is this has nothing to do with masturbation. This has to do with internet porn. So the effects of masturbation are not the effects of masturbating to streaming internet porn. The difference is you're conditioning your sexual arousal to everything associated with your internet porn use. So think about, let's just do an example, and this example's very appropriate now. Think back to 20, uh, let's say 1973, and you have a Playboy magazine and you're a 13-year-old boy, and you're looking at it and you say, well, I'm gonna masturbate to it. What can you think about? You can think about nothing. You can't, you've never had sex before. You haven't even kissed a girl. And you can just think about looking at this woman's boobs or touching the boobs. Now, go to that same 13-year-old in 2018, and they can go to Pornhub, line up some hardcore tabs, maybe about 30 tabs, maybe about two-minute clips each, and they can click from video to video while they're masturbating to porn. Well, what this does is it conditions their sexuality in two ways. The first way is, oh, this is how people have sex. This is what I should do. I should ejaculate on women's faces. I should do really rough anal sex. I should slap them. The other type of sexual conditioning that occurs while watching porn is this is what turns me on. And in this case, what turns them on is being a voyeur, watching other people having sex, needing to click from video to video to stay aroused, needing a new porn star every one to two minutes to be aroused. Maybe it's new fetishes, maybe it's strange porn. All these things become conditioned into the sexual template. And during adolescence, what is the purpose of adolescence? It is super learning. The adolescent brain is quite different from an adult, quite different from before adolescence. And it's to learn all about sexuality so that the adolescent can eventually sexually uh, reproduce. So those innate circuits and centers of the brain dealing with sexual arousal and reproduction must be shaped by the environment during adolescence. That is the rule. And so the environment now for an adolescent is masturbating to streaming hardcore porn. So it shapes uh, the sexuality. This, the problems I'm discussing aren't masturbation. People have been masturbating and ejaculating for eons. This has to do with a whole new stimulus that has entered our environment that started in 2006 with the invention of porn tube sites. I think that's a really great point. I sort of misspoke. So thank you for clarifying that point. I was actually reading right before we started this podcast about the no fap thing. So sort of my circuits got a little twisted. Well, just to mention on the no fap. So no fap was started, you know, back in uh, 2000, about the time my site went up. But their main goal, and I know the guy who founded it, his problem was porn. He has sexual problems due to porn. So the problem, uh, I'm, I'm an older guy, the younger men, they see porn use and masturbation as synonymous. So when they say no fap, no masturbation, they're really saying they're stopping the use of porn. And so that's something to keep in mind when we use the term no fap. Yeah. So if you're a listener and you're not aware, I mean, Gary sort of explained this right now, but no fap was a movement where men on Reddit got together and started saying that they were going to stop masturbating. And he's right. Part of it's uh, not masturbating. The other connection is the no porn. 
So I think that's a great, great point. You, one of the things that you talked about in the TED talk is you said that there's a correlation between sexual arousal and the change of partners or um, you started talking about sort of hardcore tabs or like these different sexual conditioning, like these different experiences. Um, can you clarify that and maybe expand upon it? Yeah. So if we think about, I like to give the example of what's called the Coolidge effect. It's a, it's a mechanism in, especially in the male brains and in pretty much all mammals. And the Coolidge effect is the desire for sexual novelty. And the way you can best uh, give an example of it is with rats. So you take a rat, put it in a cage with a willing female, and that rat will copulate maybe three, four, five times, and then he's done, even though the female's still willing. Now you take out the old female and replace it with a new, and all of a sudden he'll get an erection and copulate three or four more times, but then he'll get tired. But then you can take out the old female and replace a new one. And again, he will try to copulate, you know, and you can do this until he's completely wiped out, nearly dead. So what's happening is with each novel sexual opportunity, the rat becomes aroused. In other words, his brain starts to release more dopamine and opioids in response to novel mates. Well, what is the Internet? The Internet's all about novelty. And novelty activates the reward system, just like sex does, just like yummy food, just like achievement, just like falling in love. And the reward system is there to become activated to do things that will continue your survival or the continuation of your genes. Well, of course, nothing's more important than having sex because you need to reproduce. Well, what the Internet does, even without sex, without porn, is it takes advantage of this reward system that's similar in all mammals, and it gets activated for anything new or novel. But especially, it gets activated for novel sexual opportunities in males. So every time you see a new porn star, a picture of a new female, or if you're gay, a new guy, or click on a new video, you get a little squirt of dopamine that, caught, that tells you, oh, this is really important. But what dopamine also does, it's a learning signal and it tells you this is important for your survival and you should do it again and again in order to stay alive and continue your genes. So what internet porn does in spades is it takes advantage of this innate desire for sexual novelty in the male brain. Even though humans will fall in love and mate and maybe stay with someone forever, there's still this old programming sitting in the brain that gets aroused or extra squirts of dopamine in the reward system for novel mates. And this is sort of a tangent, but I remember I had this guy who coached for us early on with Craft Charisma, and he used to say that, he goes, with my girlfriend, I um, like I really love her, but it doesn't matter how beautiful she is after a certain amount of time of being with her. Like I just find myself attracted to other girls who so just like, she's blonde. I'm attracted to a brunette, just something different. And when I hear you describe this, it sounds like a similar phenomenon. Yeah, it is a phenomenon. So there's really like, if you can think about it, there's uh, two pedals, you know, there's like a, a pedal for sexual novelty. If you're like in a car and you're pushing on a gas pedal, but interesting enough, we have another gas pedal and that is for falling in love and bonding. So we're one of the 3% of mammals that actually do what's called pair bonding. Pair bonding 
doesn't mean you're sexually monogamous. It means technically you uh, have a real uh, neurochemical uh, attraction to one particular mate and you then pair up to have children with that mate. Some animals are thought to mate for life, but in genetic studies, they found that no so-called uh, pair bonding like swans or certain birds actually are sexually monogamous. So we really have these two types of petals that are constantly uh, sort of fighting internally with us, the desire for novelty, the desire for sexual novelty, at the same time uh, being bonded and in love with one particular person. And can you describe what the advantages of both are? Because I'm assuming that they've evolved into our nervous system or our brain for a reason. Yeah, so when we think about why would, uh, why would 3% uh, of mammals end up with falling in love and maybe mating for life. So obviously the advantage of sexual novelty is having genetic variety. And when you have genetic variety in your offspring, they're more likely to survive something like a new disease or change in the environment. So since that's by far the most common evolutionary uh, setup for mammals, that's a big advantage. But then when you get to humans, and what's occurred is with humans, we have a very long childhood uh, where the brain develops. In fact, adolescence isn't over until age 24 or 25. And so the advantage, according to evolutionary uh, biologists and psychologists, is that parents, two parents who are invested a lot in one or two offspring that actually survive to adulthood is an advantage compared to maybe a rat that has sex and has many, many offspring throughout uh, its life cycle so that some will survive. So we only have a, a relatively few uh, number of offspring and they need to be taken care of during their very long childhood. So that's, that's the thoughts behind having two people fall in love. And even if they're not sexually monogamous, and even if they're fooling around on the side, they're still bonded with each other and they're actually bonded with the children. So they have a desire to stay together and take care of the kids. That makes sense. In a practical sense, that's like the difference between a dad who fathers a bunch of kids and doesn't really know them. And they're raised by single mothers and somebody who is supporting their kid all the way through school. The kid who's got the stable home life and was support all the way through school is going to have some potential advantages. And especially when before there was, you know, welfare or government, you know, having a father and a mother to protect the child, to feed the child, to provide food as a hunter-gatherer, that'd be very important. Yeah, it makes sense from psychological, intellectual, emotional perspectives, because really obvious advantages. We've talked a little bit about the neurochemistry of porn. Is there anything else you want to add to that, some of the effects of porn on the brain? Yeah, so the effects of porn on the brain. Well, as I mentioned, you know, the one thing to think about, you know, often we get into things like addiction. And there's one thing to understand about either drug addictions or behavioral addictions is all addictions involve just amplifying normal physiological mechanisms. For example, uh, all addictive drugs increase dopamine in the reward center. If they don't increase dopamine in the reward center, like cocaine, meth, nicotine, alcohol, they cannot be addictive. 
Well, any natural rewards increase dopamine in the reward center. And sex is by far the highest level of dopamine that can be produced naturally. In fact, it's on equal with some addictive drugs like the most addictive drugs, the opioids. We have an opioid epidemic, uh, cigarettes and nicotine. So sex is quite different. In fact, sex actually activates the same nerve cells in the brain as do addictive drugs, while other uh, natural rewards like food and water and salt and the, the natural rewards that all animals share, they activate different nerve cells. So really, sex is quite unique. And what occurs is when you're sexually aroused, you have dopamine released. And when you have an orgasm, you have the opioids released. And this is a very powerful reward. And not only is it a very powerful reward, it is a very powerful learning uh, signal. So you are learning every time you have sex. You're learning it's very important. And if you're masturbating to porn, you're learning, wow, this is really important. So that's sort of the beginning place of the neurobiology of sex and of addiction. And then over time, you can learn that, oh, I'm now more excited by porn than I am real people. And ultimately, this can lead to the brain changes that accompany addiction. And these brain changes that accompany addiction are pretty much the same with drug addictions as they are with behavioral addictions. And people sometimes uh, think that, oh, well, addictions are caused by alcohol damaging the brain. No, they're not. Nicotine. Nicotine in cigarettes does not damage the brain. Nicotine is a brain enhancer. Uh, but it is considered the most addictive chemical we have because it hooks the highest percentage of users. So brain changes associated with addiction aren't damaged. They're very specific and they can occur with behaviors also such as sex, internet gaming, and gambling. Well, a lot of those things are optimized, right? Like video games through iteration have been optimized for addictiveness and and I'm assuming porn. I mean, even food, like everything. One of the things I realize on a practical uh, level is that food is iterated every time you prepare it, right? And people have optimized food. It's more accessible than ever before, and they've optimized it in a way where we crave it. We crave these sugars and fats and salts and uh, because our body needs some percentage of it. We just didn't have it in, in the level of access that we do now. And the same thing is true about porn. Yes, and this optimization was given a name and a Nobel Prize from the 1930s. This is called supernormal stimulation or stimulus. And it was Nicholas Timberger who did experiments with animals. For example, he, uh, he watched shorebirds and he created eggs for the mamas. And he made the eggs bigger and with brighter, bluer spots. And the female birds left their normal eggs to sit on the bigger, brighter, bluer eggs. And he called it a supernormal stimulus. In other words, it took advantage of a normal stimulus and it amplified it. So when you're talking about food, nowhere in nature is sugar and fat combined. But now it's combined in most everything we eat. And then you add in salt and you add in textures. And now we have 35% of adult Americans obese and 75% of them overweight. So it they are exposed to junk food, which is a supernormal stimulus. 
you don't see fat obese hunter-gatherers because it's really hard to get obese on dried beef and boiled roots. And now, what did we have before internet porn? Well, maybe you had a picture, but that wasn't as stimulating as a real person. However, now you have videos, streaming videos of everything imaginable. And you can start watching them before you even enter puberty. <laughs> and you can click from video to video with endless high-definition stuff that is unimaginable to someone before the internet even came about. So internet porn is a supernormal stimulus. It takes advantage of the Coolidge effect. It takes advantage of endless novelty. It takes advantage of sexual arousal. It puts them all together and it's, it captures you. It just completely captures the user. So a hunter-gatherer could maybe see about 10 potential mates maybe in their lifetime, potential mates in the same age category. But now a, a person, a 13-year-old, can get on the internet and see more potential mates than his hunter-gatherer could see in 10 lifetimes, and that's just in an hour session. So the novelty, the sexual novelty, the enhanced breasts, and you have the noises too, you know, you have the sounds, you have just all this material that could not be matched in preceding preceding the internet. One of the things that I, I thought about earlier when you were talking about so this reward functionality of the brain, an early psychology class I had, they talked about Pavlov's dog, right? And they ring the bell, they bring out the meat powder, the dog eats it. I don't even know what the hell meat powder is, but I remember <laughs> that from the books. Uh, and then pretty soon they do that enough times, the dog hears the bell and it begins to salivate. And And one of the things that I've realized in my own relationships is that when I first meet somebody, I'm often very attracted to them uh, before I begin dating them in past relationships. And then as I start to date them, I might become a little, you get closer to a picture and you start to see sort of more minutiae details. Like I usually find that I start to become a little less attracted to them. And then as time goes on, I become more attracted to them again. And even things that maybe I didn't like, for example, let's say at first I was attracted to her and then started dating her and I didn't really like her hair or something like that. Then as we started to become sexually active and for prolonged periods of time, I started to like, it didn't bother me as much. And then if the relationship ended, I found I was immediately attracted to any girl who had the same type of hair. And so I've always assumed that it was associative conditioning, right? Like I started to associate certain smells. The first time I ever experienced this, I was in junior high school and some girl walked by me. I worked in a restaurant in the back and this waitress walked by me and she was way older than I was in the early 20s. And she goes, oh my God, are you wearing? And she knew the deodorant. And I said, yeah, how, how did you know that? And she goes, oh, my ex-boyfriend used to wear it and it drives me crazy. And it re I realized that later on when I took the psychology class that they'd have start having sex, he'd start sweating, his deodorant would sort of activate or start to become stronger because he's sweating it off to a certain extent right around the time she had aroused. And so she started to become conditioning and just having her walk by and smell my deodorant was making her a little bit wet, I guess. I mean, would you agree with these things? Because I feel like they're associated with pair bonding. Well, yes, they can be associated with pair bonding. So if we go back to pair bonding, you have this rush of falling in love and your brain changes. It's called the honeymoon period, which we've all heard of. And you have an increase in dopamine. They're pretty much sure that occurs. You have a decrease in serotonin, which makes you sort of obsessive. <clears throat> but this honeymoon neurochemistry uh, wears off at the farthest, about 
two years out. So then you start to see the person differently. And obviously, just through experience, you can see it wear off uh, more quickly in a lot of people. And yes, the conditioning part's very important. So first sex or early sex or early sexual experience or first loves, you're, you're are really, really powerful. They not only, of course, we can observe that in our own life and others' lives, but you can observe that and do experiments on it in rats or monkeys or other uh, rodents. For example, and this is sort of a strange story, but they will take a, a female and they'll take a virgin male rat, put him in the cage. But what they've done with the female, they've doused it with the smell of death called cadaverine. So the, so the female smells like rotting dead flesh. Now the rat doesn't want anything to do with it like most animals don't. But it has sex with this female and it's conditioned to now like and be attracted to the smell of death. And that tells you how powerful first conditioning is. In fact, when they give the rat uh, a dowel, a wooden dowel soaked in the smell of death called cadaverine, it'll actually gnaw on it. Whereas a rat who's not conditioned will run away from it to the opposite end of the cage or try to bury it in the dirt. So first sex, early sex, adolescent sex is very powerful in what it conditions you to. And then that brings us back to internet porn. So the sexual experience of adolescents now are thumbing through a bunch of tabs, masturbation session after masturbation session, for years prior to having their first kiss often, or even their first sexual intercourse. And that's having a powerful effect. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's consistent with a lot of what I've experienced in, in life. And I do think that early sexual experience, whether it's somebody's touch or their smell or the feel of their lips, like anything that sort of happens when you're physically close to somebody, physically intimate, especially in a sexual context, they've definitely shaped my experiences and they've shaped the way that I approach relationships. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. If watching porn and getting these experiences through a computer screen is unhealthy, like what are the types of experiences that a person needs in order to develop into a man who can have healthy relationships? Well, I think uh, just 
what happened throughout evolution is we didn't get our sexual education or our sexual arousal through pixels. So this is the first generation or now two generations that's doing that. And it's having obvious effects. <clears throat> and here's the shocking statistic. And, and I wrote a, a peer-reviewed paper with seven U.S. Navy doctors about internet pornography's effects on sexuality. And what we discovered is that in all the studies that were done between Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey in 1948, up to 2000 and beyond, erectile dysfunction rates in men under 40 were between 2 and 3%. That makes sense. Then studies started to come out 2009, 2010, and beyond, and erectile dysfunction rates jumped from 3% to up to 16 to 37% in men under 40. Some of them had low libido, lo loss of sexual desire, close to 40%. That is unheard of. So internet porn is having its effects, and you can almost see this in larger population studies. For example, right now in the US, we had the lowest teenage pregnancy rates of all time because we had the lowest sexual activity almost of all time. Like in 1991, uh, the rates of high school seniors having regular sex was about 38%. 2015, it dropped to 30%. So that's a huge drop. Um, in Japan, in 2010, one third of the guys aged 16 to 19 said they had no interest in sex at all. And that's eight years ago. And the man who did the survey, the medical doctor said he blamed largely porn use. So there's been these tremendous shifts in how uh, just these unbelievable statistics just in the last 10 years. That's fascinating because that's, that's a statistic I've heard a lot lately, right? Like this decrease in sexual activity among teenagers. And usually when I hear it, it's by some politician who's advocating abstinence or better education <laughs> or like an increased sense of morality among young people. And what you're saying is they're just getting out of their system another way. And there's some potential serious consequences uh, that we're going to have to deal with later on as a result of this. Uh, absolutely. You know, it, there's it has nothing to do with sex education or increased morality. I mean, look what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years. The media is just completely sexualized. You know, a, a little kid who can use a smartphone can watch any graphic thing he wants to. So it, it's obvious what's going on, especially now that we have almost 20, 25 studies that link porn use to sexual dysfunctions. And then we have these rates. It's pretty clear what's going on. And, and on top of that, the age of getting married is being pushed further and further up. I don't know, it's close to 30 for men now. And just think back to the 70s, you know, it wasn't unusual for guys to get married uh, right out of high school or during college. And so there's lots of societal changes that are occurring. And I think it has a lot to do with the internet uh, and internet porn. How does somebody know if they're addicted to porn? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. And uh, the first thing I like to say is, you know, we often talk about porn as if, oh, you have an addiction or you don't. And if you don't, then you're okay. 
And so that's looking at it binary and its effects are not binary. That's pretty clear. And in fact, there was a study, a brain study out of Germany a couple of years ago, and it looked at those men who were not addicted. And it found that the more porn they used, the less gray matter uh, they had in the reward system, the less arousal they had to sexual stimuli. And so we also see like a study out of Italy that looked at high school seniors, males, and it found that those that use porn more than once a week, 18, 16% of them had low libido. And what about the high school seniors who didn't use porn? None of them, 0% had low libido, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And then if we look at studies on porns and sexual satisfaction or relationship satisfaction, every single study, about 55 of them, every single study on males finds that more porn is related to less sexual and relationship satisfaction. So I want to get that out of the way. It's not binary at all. Its effects are cumulative. And that would make sense because it's the most powerful stimulus available, sexual arousal and orgasm. So every time we have it, we are learning and it's shaping our brain and shaping our perceptions. But in terms of addiction, your, your original question, try to quit. If you can quit easily, you have no withdrawal symptoms, you have no cravings, then you're probably not addicted. But if you start having cravings, the desire to use porn, if you start having withdrawal symptoms like irritability, anxiety, maybe the loss of libido, that's one of the major uh, withdrawal effects is your libido declines. Then what you've uh, ascertained, whether you think it's addiction or not, you've ascertained that porn use has affected you. And that's what's most important. So that's, that's the first step, I would suggest. And uh, like many guys who stay off of porn for two, three, four, five months, they start to see benefits, then you're starting to see, wow, maybe I wasn't addicted, but my goodness, porn use was affecting me in ways I didn't recognize. Maybe I wasn't thinking as clearly. Maybe I saw women differently. Maybe I was less social. Maybe I was less motivated. And then you can start to see how porn use is really affecting you. Like if somebody is experiencing or they think that they have a porn addiction like what are some of the things that they'll recognize and what are the first steps like do you just cut cold turkey is there a process or the groups like what does somebody do if they think that they have porn addiction? how do they recognize it and if they find that they're having porn addiction how do you deal with it and and also what type of obstacles and setbacks might occur you talked a little bit about anxiety are there other things that pop up yeah so that's a, a multi-pronged question so yeah, it really comes back to quitting and seeing if you have uh, the desire to use uh, cravings or you you know you have the inability to control use. Those are the type of things that are associated with addiction, and so are withdrawal symptoms. You may have heard they'll say, "Well, there's no withdrawal symptoms with porn addiction," but there absolutely are. We've chronicled hundreds and hundreds of stories. The guys talk about it all the time. Uh, Anxiety, of course, insomnia, sometimes depression, lack of focus, mood swings. But one of the most interesting to look for, and this is one of the ones that's also a setback because it drives men back to using porn, is what they call the flat line. 
and that's described as a loss of libido. Some even describe their penis getting colder, even shrinking. I know it, it seems unbelievable. The loss of morning erections when they quit. So, so those are some of the signs and some of the more extreme signs. Uh, as far as what to do, of course, you try to quit, but there's certainly, you learn about porn. So you can go to my site and learn about its effects. You can go to my site and go to the support forums. So there's lots of places where you can get support, lots of forums like NoFap or Reboot Nation. On our site, we have something called Tools for Change. So some of the things you can do, you know, and it's important to, uh, if you're not meditating, perhaps meditating, exercise, get more social, replace porn with hobbies, uh, join groups, go out dancing. And there's you really have to change your life if you're addicted. You may have to get therapy. Uh, there's lots of things you can do. You have to get off the computer too. So, so there's lots of things to do. Sometimes people quit easily. Sometimes they really struggle and they really have a severe addiction. And those type, those individuals may need a support group or they may need regular therapy. Okay. So, so what you're saying is they, they need to quit porn, but they can keep masturbating. Is that what you're implying? Yeah. See, yeah, you go to my site and, and we don't have a program. We have, uh, we have like five, close to 5,000 recovery stories, full recovery stories. We have a page which some of the top, uh, posts and suggestions by those who are successful. So you'll see lots of different suggestions. Like if you go to NoFap, they'll say, okay, don't masturbate for 90 days. Well, you know, who knows where that came from? We think it came from the 12 steps where people who are so-called sex addicts, they'll be told, you know, don't, don't have any sexual relations. Uh, don't masturbate for 90 days. It's sort of a reset, but that's not what we suggest. We suggest whatever works. And, and some, some young men or pretty much all men are younger than me, but young men will, will, We'll say, okay, I'm going to go 30 days, 60 days, 90 days without masturbation just to sort of see how that works. But for some, that can be a real setback, especially those who might have obsessive compulsive disorder. They often can't do that. Or others, what they'll do is they'll say, oh, I'm going to really try not to masturbate. And then when they masturbate, they think it's some type of relapse, like an alcoholic going into a bar and drinking. It's not a relapse. And then they'll just turn to porn and binge on porn because they masturbated. So you'd never, never want to think of masturbation as a relapse of any type. You really have to choose what works for you. And yeah, if you take a time out from masturbation for a few weeks to a few months, you know, you're not going to die, but you'll just have to see what works for you. Oftentimes, I think when people are masturbating, they're sort of running their own movies in their head. So how is that different than watching a movie on your cell phone or computer screen? Well, if you're recalling porn, there are some similarities. So if you're trying to recover from porn, you don't want to recall porn use. If you're, let's just go back to our original example. If you're watching porn, what increases dopamine? Novelty, something new. Also the anticipation of something new. 
that means being ready to click. Also, what increases dopamine is something that causes shock or surprise, like you click on something, oh my God, it's incest porn, oh my God, it's rape porn. In fact, that's what causes a lot of uh, porn users to eventually escalate. They'll escalate into more extreme porn because it is shocking, it's surprising, it causes anxiety, and all those can directly or indirectly increase sexual arousal through uh, adrenaline, through cortisol, through dopamine increasing. So that's what you can do while watching porn. Well, you can't do that while you're imagining. If you're imagining having sex with someone, you are the protagonist. You're usually imagining having sex. You're usually imagining doing it, and you're often imagining it with one person. So you're, you're, you can't shock yourself. You can't surprise yourself. You can't imagine endless streams of very vivid, novel sexual mates in your head. So it's quite different than watching porn. So if you had a porn problem and you're choosing to masturbate, then I would suggest uh, don't recall porn. Uh, masturbate as if you're having sex. If you do use your imagination and don't recall porn. I feel like another thing that might happen, and I'm assuming when people masturbate, they probably oftentimes think about somebody they know. And that probably on some level makes them more likely to be connected to a sense of reality? Absolutely. So I couldn't agree with that. I mean, look, let's go back to, you know, I, I'm 62 and the guys I knew, they, they didn't masturbate to Playboy. You know, they masturbated to the girls that were in their high school classes. That's how it was. Let's just be, you know, very clear and open. So that's what they did. And so they conditioned their sexuality to reality, not to something that was fake and couldn't be matched in real life. So you, in essence, a, a porn user is controlling their arousal with the click of a mouse. A new person, a new genre, a new fetish, uh, something shocking. You can't do that in real sex. You can't watch. You can't change the partner with the click of a mouse. Hmm. Well, there's emotional feedback, right? Oh, yeah. So your, your partner is going to, to react like if you suggest something and most people are not going to go to such extremes unless they've nurtured those extremes some other place like watching porn. Yeah. So when we think about all these young men who who have very little sexual experience and they have their first experience at age 22 of trying to have intercourse and they're going, this doesn't seem real. This uh, it seems alien. I can't get aroused. Well, what they've done is they've been training for the wrong sport. So it's like you're getting ready for soccer and you've been playing golf for the last six years. It's not going to help you much in a soccer match. And so what they've done is they've been sitting and watching porn and it doesn't match having real sex. So when they get to real sex, they actually have a drop in libido because their expectations, their Pavlovian conditioned expectations are not matched in a real sexual encounter. And that causes uh, a drop in dopamine, a drop in libido. And they're like, ah, this isn't exciting. I can't get aroused. Um, I don't want to stretch too far, but do you feel like you could talk about like moving off porn? What are some of the things that people can do to develop healthy sexual relationships? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about today, and so we, you know, 2018, and I have a son, and I know a lot of young men, and I taught for years, so I taught that age group. Uh, and, and what's different now is something like, you know, Tinder or the internet or Facebook or, you know, swiping right, swiping left. And, and I think it sets us up we don't even know how it sets us up with porn to really crave novelty and to think back to them olden days where people actually slowly got to know each other uh slowly entered into the sexual realm and that's how they developed relationships now yeah there were one night stands and all that but that's often how it occurred and I think, I think if today someone were willing, a young man, a young woman, were willing to just think, take things slowly and see how different it might be before jumping into bed, you know, three hours after they meet. It's just a suggestion. Sounds a little crazy, but it's just a suggestion. There's also a lot of challenges, I feel like, for young people in the sense that like I, th I think about the scalability of some of these platforms and things like you might have been attracted in a different time to a local musician. And now you're attracted to there's millions of people attracted to one musician because they're broadcasting their personality and their music around the world. Or you might be attracted to some girl in your town or guy in your town who goes to school with you. They're in your social circle. And now people are attracted to a guy or girl they find more physically attractive, better hit certain ideals of beauty because they access them through an app and they're on the other side of the world. Right. Um, so I definitely think that there's some challenges. There. Other challenges, I think it's better in maybe grade school or junior high or high school, maybe even college where you're with people consistently over a prolonged period of time. But for a lot of adults, the only time they're around, uh, people in a consistent way might be the people that work and or there's a lot of disadvantages to trying to date people from work right so how does somebody create an environment where they're able to I, I understand the novelty aspect of it and you're saying like the brain is preconditioned to want these novelties you look at a picture of a person and then you swipe to the next one because our brain is looking for that and sort of hijack these systems that are hard-coded into our nervous system a long time ago um, but how does somebody move from these digital platforms into building more solid social circles in order to start building this, these very human relationships? Well, that's what we're seeing is more people are craving communities and trying to build communities. Uh, I've noticed it with my son and others is how they're craving community at the same time they have an endless community online. They want real connection. And I don't know that I have the answer. Some of it do this through shared activities, whether it's, you know, rock climbing or riding bicycles. Uh, here on the West Coast, we're very physically active. So a lot of people do it through those activities. Uh, you know, for, for young men, since that's been my focus of late, I would suggest that they join dance classes and learn how to dance. Uh, those type of things can be very valuable. Uh, but but it's not an easy question to answer because, you know, you go out to friends. I've seen it before. Friends go out to a bar on a Friday night. They're in their 20s. 
and they're looking at their iPhones and they're looking for a date and they just, you know, went through about a hundred different opportunities in a five mile radius and then they maybe go out with them. So I, I don't know what to say. It's hard to reverse what's occurred. But I think if we could unplug, and, and I've seen this with some people who've unplugged for two to three weeks and got out in nature, and it really changed their perspective. You know, they were much more relaxed. Uh, it just really changed them. So that'd be great if all of us could take three to four weeks, completely throw away our phones and our digital stuff and enter nature. I know that's probably unreasonable, but maybe even a couple of days of doing that over the weekend. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a great suggestion. And I really like the idea of dance. I mean, that's something that we suggest to a lot of our clients because not only does it is it a skill that you can use that a lot of people find, potential mates find attractive, it also puts you in a social environment. And especially a lot of guys, it teaches them how to touch and how to get more comfortable with touch, get more comfortable with leading. I, I remember I was with a friend of mine, she's a professor of mine at Columbia, and she was talking about Latin dance. She's from South America. She goes, the men lead, but the women choose to follow. And if they don't like something, there's different ways that you can create space or set boundaries while you're dancing. And I realized that was such a perfect metaphor for courtship itself. I couldn't agree more. My, my son, when he was 16, got into taking all sorts of dance lessons and ended up a few years ago down in uh, Argentina for five months just tangoing the night away every night. And so it, it was quite quite an experience for him. In general, just this idea of getting off this digital world and moving into the real world so that you can start to build, as you described, these dopamine reward experiences through interactions with people that you can see and hopefully touch and smell and taste. And I think that would lead to a lot more healthy relationships. And that's what everyone's craving. I mean, that's the most important reward. We're social animals, so we can get a little bit of it on Facebook, but that's not really, you know, social reward. But the social reward of being out there, you know, dating, dancing, hanging out with your friends, doing something you enjoy, those are the real important rewards that stick with you throughout life. You also can't build a mate, a life, a partner, and reproduce through a computer screen. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Um, not yet. <laughs> well, that that's scary. <laughs> uh, we have virtual reality porn now, so who knows how long before we can do that. Yeah, crazy. What, what are some of the changes guys will notice as they heal from porn addiction? And can you share any inspiring stories? You said you have 5,000 of them from your site. Well, that's just 5,000 full ones. We have tens of thousands of short little uh, clips also. Now, you know, what's interesting is over, you know, I monitor about five different forums, but we saw these benefits back in 2006 when guys quit. So they, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't placebo because they just kept reporting the same thing over and over again. And almost universally, they would say they wanted to be more social. Many of them who thought they had severe social anxiety, it just disappeared or got better. Others who didn't have social anxiety actually felt more like themselves, felt more outgoing. Why is that? That's the big question. I don't have the answer for why it is. You know, I put out theories that, you know, chronic porn use can affect the dopamine system and downregulate dopamine signaling. And 
Downregulated dopamine is associated with social anxiety, low motivation, low energy, depression. So perhaps it has to do with that. Perhaps it's affecting the frontal cortex, which also uh, is involved with these attributes. I don't know, but it's just reported over and over again. And the other thing is feeling more emotions. Over and over again, they say, I feel more emotions. I feel more alive. Colors are brighter. Food tastes better. I've cried for the first time in 10 years. Sometimes the emotions will be overwhelming. So they'll be like a roller coaster up and down, good and bad emotions, but they're feeling more emotions. Another one that's uh, almost universal is they their brains work better. They can concentrate better. They can remember better. They feel uh, funnier. Uh, they feel like themselves again. So, so there's lots of consistent changes after several months of giving up porn for most of them. Unfortunately, many of them go through not feeling so good for a while. They'll be depressed for a while. They'll feel less social. They'll have more anxiety. So you really have to go through the bad feelings if you truly are addicted to get to the good feelings. Are there any other feelings that if someone's listening to this and, and they want to quit porn that they should expect that they might feel? Well, you know, uh, back to one of the most universal uh, experiences is the loss of libido. And this even, this occurs for those who aren't addicted, you know, who, who use porn maybe two to three times a week, who can quit relatively easy without cravings, but they'll feel this loss of libido and they'll say, what's happened to me? So that is just a sign that porn use has changed your brain and your libido will come back and you'll have actually a stronger libido, not for porn, but for real connection with real people. Oh, this is awesome. I know we're sort of getting towards the end of our time. Is there anything else you really want to add or anything that you want to suggest to the listeners that might help them on their journey? Because for us, what we're really trying to build is we're trying to build just better men, better people and create the skill sets that they need in order to have healthy, happy relationships. Well, you know, since my whole thing is about you know, the digital revolution, in essence, I would suggest as much as possible, just get away from the computer, just unplug and absolutely just give up porn. You know, it's an experiment. You can always go back and watch all the porn you want, but give it up and give it up for several months and see if you start to notice any of its effects. Has it changed your perception? And how would you know? Well, now your perception is different. You see the world differently. You see women differently. You see yourself differently. That means it's changed. But really, unplug is what I suggest as much as possible. Uh, you know, try to get off of video games. They're just a waste of time as far as I'm concerned. Get your rewards in nature. Get outside. Get among people. Uh, if you have to, go to a coffee shop and just sit there and look at people, you know, if you're not very social. Just get away from the computer. Gary, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Gary, you want to learn more about the things that he's working on, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website within the description of this podcast so you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks. It's been my pleasure. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.